Hello and welcome to the Wounded Blue Hour on the America Out Loud Network, a show devoted to the physical, emotional, and spiritual health of America's law enforcement community and those who support them. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, a retired Las Vegas police lieutenant, author of A Cop's Life, and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety, and most importantly, the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. On this program, we examine the realities of policing and its effects on those who serve behind the badge and their loved ones. Von Kleem is my guest today. I'm happy to have you here. So I'm going to give you a little background about Von. Uh, get ready for some, some a lot of information here. With over 30 years in the criminal justice profession, Vaughn worked as a civilian police officer, attorney, educator, and author, and is currently the director of consulting and executive editor at Force Science. As a litigation consultant, Vaughn is involved in some of the most high-profile use-of-force cases in the United States and internationally. His team evaluates police practices, policy, law, and human factors in police decision-making and performance. And I could go on, but it is he, he's, uh, he is truly an expert in the use of force. And that is one of the most important topics affecting the uh, mental, emotional, and spiritual, and physical health of our injured officers uh, around the nation. So um, let's cut to our reality check. Reality check is a new segment. And this is where we reveal the dangers that uh, our law enforcement community is facing, information that you would not get elsewhere. The first is the fact that last year in 2022, there were uh, 229 line of duty deaths suffered by our law enforcement across the nation. Um, and uh, we were only in at the end of January. So far, um, two end of watch uh, uh, notices that I want to tell you about. The first is Chief of Police Justin McIntyre of the Breckenridge Borough Police Department in Pennsylvania. Chief of Police Justin McIntyre was shot and killed near the intersection of Breckenridge and Morgan during a foot pursuit of a wanted subject. The man was wanted for a probation violation involving weapons and had fled from the Pennsylvania State Police during a traffic stop the previous night. He then fled on foot from Harrison Township the following morning during another traffic stop. At 2 p.m., he was located near the border of Breckenridge Borough and Tarentum Borough and led officers on a foot pursuit for over two hours. He opened fire on officers on Breckenridge and again in 3rd Avenue, and that was when Chief McIntyre was killed and another officer wounded. After the shooting, both officers, uh, after shooting both officers, the man carjacked a vehicle and fled into the city of Pittsburgh, and that's where Pittsburgh police took care of business and shot and killed him. Chief of Police Justin McIntyre, Breckenridge Borough Police Department, Pennsylvania. End of watch Monday, January 2nd, 2023. The second is Deputy Sheriff Darnell Calhoun of the Riverside County Sheriff's Department in California. 
Deputy Sheriff Darnell Calhoun was shot and killed while responding to a domestic violence call, Hilldale Lane in Lake Elsinore. A call taker heard the sounds of a struggle after an occupant of the home had called to report a child custody issue at the residence. Deputy Calhoun was the first deputy to arrive on the scene and was immediately shot. Deputy Calhoun's backup arrived, discovered him wounded in the street. The second deputy became engaged in a shootout with the subject and wounded him. Deputy Calhoun was transported to Valley Medical Center where he succumbed to his wounds. He had served with the Riverside County Sheriff's Department for just 11 months. He is survived by his expectant wife and two sons. Deputy Sheriff Darnell Calhoun, Riverside County Sheriff's Department, California, end of watch Friday, January 13th, 2023. These uh, line of duty deaths that I, that I tell you about will be updated on each episode of this show. But the violence, the violence that our officers are facing are, um, are evidenced by not just the, the deaths, but by the shootings of our officers. And I'm going to read you the list. This is just so far in January that officers have been shot. January 1st, Clearwater, Florida, officer shot. January 2nd, uh, Breckenridge Police, or Breckenridge, Pennsylvania, officer shot. January 4th, Orangeville, Texas, officer shot. January 5th, Hachita, New Mexico. Uh, January 6th, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Uh, January 8th, Reno, Nevada. Uh, uh, on January 10th, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. On uh, January 10th, also Lawrence, Indiana. On uh, January 11th, Hampton, Virginia. On January 12th, Palo Alto, California. On uh, January 13th, Lake Elsinore, California. On uh, January 14th, Newton, Texas. On uh, January 17th, Double Springs, Alabama. On January 17th, Elizabeth, New Jersey. And also on the 17th, Racine, Wisconsin. Three officers shot there. Um, that is the reality check. That is what our law enforcement community is facing. And this cycle of violence continues even as our officers continue to do their jobs and protect and serve. Now, let me let me get engaged here with Von Kleem. Um, I've known Von for, for quite a while. He's been a speaker at the Wounded Blues uh, National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. And uh, he is a national speaker. In fact, he is in Las Vegas with me in the studio today uh, because he's speaking at another major conference here in, uh, in Vegas. And um, I asked him to be on the show because I don't believe that there is anything more important when we're coming down to what this show is all about, and that is the use of force by, uh, by police officers in order to combat um, the, uh, the people who would attack them. And you, you just heard that list, that litany of, of just officers shot. That doesn't count the number of officers who have been beaten, the number of officers who've been stabbed and, and been involved in, in altercations Shot that at. can be that can be life altering. So talk a little bit about Force Science. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating company that you work for. It's doing amazing work and it's really having a, a huge impact on law enforcement throughout the nation. 
Yeah, so we, we've boiled down four sciences to the mission or to the, the statement of uh, we help people understand force encounters through science and research. If I take that, you know, and bring it into line with what we're talking about here, there is a, there's a huge effort right now um, to hold officers accountable. We keep hearing this concept of holding officers accountable, which we all agree needs to happen. What we have made it our mission to do is ensure that accountability is honest accountability and never lets anyone involved, whether it's our community members, the, the courts, the trainers, the administrators within the departments, they can never forget, as you said earlier, there's a human behind that badge. Right, so the, the presentation I'm giving this week is cops are not cameras because what we're seeing in the cases uh, we're working on is when we're trying to hold officers accountable, what we're seeing in the charging documents, what we're seeing in the complaints is that they're, they're being expected to perform at levels that are beyond human performance capabilities. So force science specifically is educating our interviewers, educating our investigators, educating the, the street officers. Uh, I teach courses for attorneys and executive leaders. And again, it, it really focuses on the human behind the badge. We want everyone to understand that the, the officers are not witnessing these events. As we talked about up at Terre Haute, officers are experiencing these events. And when an officer is involved in a critical incident or really just going through life, um, there are psychological, physiological, and environmental influences on those threat assessments and then the responses. So again, when we're trying to hold them accountable, when we're trying to evaluate to determine, you know, why you did what you did, our job is to ensure they that they never forget, um, again, that that's a human, right? Not a robot. And that's before, during, and after the event. The advent of body-worn cameras mm -hmm. was a watershed moment for law enforcement. It was basically uh, sold to the public as we've got to protect the public from those from those brutal police officers and and of course that this began under the obama administration when uh in a, in a much major way due to some high profile uh shooting incidents now um the number of body-worn cameras is increasing exponentially throughout america mm -hmm. how has that affected the um the, the the way in which use of force is perceived that's a great question the the idea was we, we would hope it would make things easier right and i think in many ways it has it, the opposite has happened as you know they wanted to find evidence to indict officers right again back to that concept of accountability what they found increasingly and overwhelmingly and i'll, I'll say exponentially is the cops are doing it right. They're doing a great job with de-escalation. They're doing a great job of persuading people to drop the guns, right? They, there is an exponentially more number of people that police could legally and ethically shoot that they don't. Um, there is exponentially more people that the officers could use force against, but instead generate compliance, right? Voluntary compliance. And that's starting to come out in these videos. Um, now, the videos are also being used as a, as a weapon in a sense of, now we have agencies across the country, um, usually prosecution offices uh, or review officers, that want to take the body cams and audit them in their entirety throughout the officer's day. They want to look for any unprofessional conduct. They want to know, did you use bad language? Were you rude? Did you, uh, did you have a bad day, essentially? Any policy violation. And so I, I sort of laughed when I heard that, you know, there were prosecutor officers who want to hire 65 people to do nothing but review body cam footage 
And we're not talking following an incident. We're just talking about daily review of body cams to look for policy violations. Now, it can be sold as we want to improve training. We want to have a good feedback mechanism. And there is a lot of value in that. You probably did as well as I did. We watched our own videos, right? We watch our traffic stops. We watch our, our body cams. And we would learn tactical lessons from that. And so we would do after action reviews, right? Right. Where when you do an after action review, the goal is to get better, right? Now what's happening is the goal is to is to catch officers, right? And if they right. catch you, right. you find a policy violation. Um, so there's that. That's what's going on. But I want to I want to give even bigger about videos. You know, you've heard this idea of videos are liars, right? Videos are liars because if you try to use the video as a proxy for the officer's experience, it it is not going to neatly reflect the officer's experience. It's not even going to be close because there's no there's no emotion involved, right? And the the easiest example I use is how many of us have cameras. I'll use a backup camera in your car. It's pitch black at night. You put your car in reverse. You look at your monitor, and it's it's lit up, right? You can actually see the road behind you. If you turned around, you couldn't see it. We are all aware that cameras have technological advantages that we don't have as humans. Mm -hmm. But when we watch them for purposes of accountability and evaluation, we seem to forget that. And so we are imagining that everything we can see on that video, even if it's a body cam, is what the officer saw. And so what one of the things we're talking about this week uh, at the conference is Dr. Mark Green wrote a, wrote a great article, 33 Reasons for Not Seeing. And that's just one example of why how we can help explain why we can see objective evidence on a video that the officer may not have seen, even if it was available to be seen, right? And, and so there's 33 reasons he identified. We don't know what the officer did or did not see. Like at Force Science, we don't make that guess. Where we come in is the opposition will see something on a video and then say the officer must have seen that. And then they're gonna wanna use that detail, that data point, that fact against the officer and we can't say whether they saw it or not, but either can they. And so ultimately, the research that we bring to bear in these cases is to just as rebuttal to the opposition side who's claiming any reasonable officer would have seen that. Well, that's not the standard. The standard is what did this officer see and what did it mean to him once he saw it? Um, so this is a big part of the videos. When we say videos are liars, we got to talk about lighting conditions. We got to talk about frame rates. We talk about how things can look faster or slower on the video. We, we, look at, we can look at videos and uh, there will be, uh, you know, again, based on the, the, the speed or the, of the frame rates, you can actually miss movements by the officer or miss movements by the suspect. So you'll have a suspect who will, you know, we know we value like resistive tension or pulling away um, a, a shift of a foot that might indicate a pursuit or a shift of a foot might indicate a pre-attack indicator. And the officer will say, I saw this. We'll look at the video. And it's not on there. And so now we have an entire society of people looking at videos, thinking that is the objective truth mm -hmm. of what happened. Right. Um, and if that video hasn't been interrogated, if that video hasn't been analyzed, um, to look for these limitations and to be able to identify them and explain them, we now have entire audience members trying to hold officers accountable for a video, for an experience that the officer didn't have. Right, so right. Really complicated stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, but, but we're talking about literally the lives of these officers hanging in the balance. Yeah. Um, you know, we have seen, um, especially in the last couple of years, a, a tremendous rise of what I call Trojan horse prosecutors. Mm. They've been put into office as district attorneys, prosecutors, states, 
attorneys, whatever they want to be called, um, by money provided by um, leftist causes, and they've been really, really successful around the nation in putting these district attorneys in in places like Chicago, New York, uh, L.A., um, uh, San Francisco, literally all over the country, and they're. Their goal is to prosecute as many police officers as possible. So this is this is the world, the new world of policing, and and our cops know this. So how do you think that affects the their their emotional well being and their mental health when they know that in many cases they're the ones who are going to be subject to a, a severe investigation that could that could literally uh, land them in prison. Yeah, well, we've gotten to a point now where some of the guidance coming out of the prosecutor's office or the attorney general's offices or even legislatures in some states, um, they, they fail at the two most basic rules of policy, right? One is it has to be clear enough that the officer can predict the lawfulness of their own behavior in advance, right? You need to know what the rules are clearly so that I can predict whether it's excessive use of force and it's going to be supported or it's not. You know, that's the one. The second one is it can't be beyond human performance capabilities, right? So we'll see language out there that'll say officers must use a minimum amount of force necessary. And we get calls and they'll say, well, how do we know what that is? How is a human able to predict the minimum amount of force that will be necessary? Right, of course. And, you know, the easy examples are, you know, a firefighter being asked to put a fire out with the minimum amount of water necessary or a football player being asked to make a tackle with the minimum amount of force necessary. Um, I do this on college campuses and I look at all the athletes and say, how many wrestlers? You know, you can go out and you can pin pin your opponent, but you can only pin him with the minimum amount of force necessary. And they start to get it. You know, that's, a, that's beyond human performance capabilities to engage in that level of predictive analysis that you would even know what that was. And cops on the street know this, right? The chiefs should know yeah, this. Right. Um, how many times have we been in fights with, with the small person and it goes on and on and on? And the big guy folds, you yeah. know, instantly. You start, you learn, you can't look at somebody and, and very accurately predict how much force is going to be necessary. Uh, until you try it, right? So we talk about that, that entry point. Um, it's a best guess. I'm looking at this person and I'm gonna use an educated guess on what my entry point is. Maybe it's a taser, maybe it's pepper spray, maybe you can go hands-on. But each of those decisions, the threat assessment and the subsequent response is nothing more than an educated guess. Or for those of my colleagues who hate the word guess, I'll say an educated judgment. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> um, it is more than that. But you you hit on some stuff and I wanna, I wanna I tried to make sense of this several years ago, and here's what might be helpful to the audience when you talk about these prosecutors. Um, if you are looking at this, these prosecutors and what they're doing and, and asking yourself, how does this help traditional law and order interests? How is what they're doing going to help advance officer safety, public safety, uh, crime detection, crime prevention, uh, property protection? These are you know, the efficient administration of justice. These are what are referred to as traditional law and order interests. And that's what we grew up. That's what our policies are surrounded by. That's what our training is surrounded by. These are officer safety tactics. This is why we want cops, when someone takes off running, to chase them and catch them because we right. have administration of justice as a, as a legitimate government interest. We have crime detection, evidence collection, all these things. 
if you just let them go, you are ignoring all of these other government interests. So how is it that these prosecutors are coming in? If we compare what they're doing and ask ourselves, well, how is what they're doing support these? You're going to be frustrated because those traditional law and order interests are not the interests of these progressive prosecutors, wherever they come from. The, if you look at traditional law and order interests and compare them to social justice interests, which, by the way, if you define social justice as the removal of unearned disadvantages from historically disenfranchised groups, who would argue with that? Like we all want to remove unearned disadvantages, right? We want equality of out, or we want equality of treatment, even if we'll never see equality of outcome. Um, that's that's a laudable goal. So when you look at these progressive prosecutors, um, you have to understand their goal is to reduce absolute numbers. I want less black people in prison. Right. I want less use of force against historically disenfranchised minority groups. I want uh, less people shot by police. It is an absolute numbers game. Right. And so if you think about that and they say, you don't get to chase anybody now. If, if, if someone takes off running with a gun in their hand, do not chase them. You've just ignored all these traditional law and order interests, traditional law and order interests. But if you understand that you're supporting the social justice goal of just reducing the absolute number of black people arrested or the absolute number of people incarcerated, um, then they have achieved that goal. And so when you look at these, the, these progressive prosecution policies, from that lens, they make absolute sense, right? We're oh, going to let people out of prison. Yeah, we're going to no, not change. Of, of course, I, I, you're at your 100% right. They are achieving their goals. Yeah. But at what price to yeah. the public safety? Yeah. And and the other, the other part of this is um, you would think that the adults in the room, the, 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 the legislatures and the, the governors of – these these states and and the and the mayors and city councils would have the 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 safety of the people that they are that they were elected to serve. You would think that they would that they would have their um, welfare in mind, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing this this radical shift, and and when when you know we're looking we're watching now as. Law enforcement agencies are bleeding people. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're just watching the wholesale diminishment of the entire law enforcement community across the country. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're fighting the good fight, but you got to be you got to seem like you're you're shoveling stuff against the tide. Yeah. So I, what I try to do is I don't like identity politics, <clears throat> so I try not to do it. <laughs> Um, and so what I've decided is if the people that are supporting progressive prosecution efforts or social justice efforts in, in lieu of traditional law and order interests, right, they are frustrating the system because the system was built around traditional law and order interests. Right. right? And so they're frustrating the officers who were trained to operate in that system. And sometimes they're doing it openly. I used to say you know, the policy writers, these prosecutors will never suffer the consequences of bad policy decisions. They have no stake in it, right? The only stake they might get voted out if the crime rate gets high enough, right? Right. And so these are literally, by definition, social experiments. These, these progressive reform efforts are, by definition, social experiments, and they're using the police officers for the, experience, the yeah. experiment. But they're also using the community. And so if we go back... And now we need to research. We need to see, okay, well, how, how have these progressive policies impacted 
your crime rates within the very cities you you claim to want to be protecting, mm-hmm. right? And if we get into the cities and actually ask the residents, what we're what we're seeing is they want more police, right? Yes, everyone wants good good police. We want well trained police, and so the effort should be in getting well trained police because what agency hasn't been begging for training dollars since exactly. the beginning, right? Exactly. So you're seeing the conversation now around more or less police. What is the effect on crime rates? What do the communities actually want? What kind of police do we want? So we, we're talking a lot about uh, diversity these days because there's an argument being made that the community members want to see officers who look like them. Um, there's not a lot of research that would support that position. Yeah, exactly. But but what there is is a, a strong narrative that's being forced through the media, through academia, through a lot of uh, international police organizations um, that have gotten behind a lot of these progressive movements. Mm -hmm. It's confusing to me why they do that, um, because there isn't evidence that it's actually going to reduce crime and increase officer safety, increase public safety. And it is, again, by definition, a social experiment that we've all been sort of forced into at this point. Right. Let's uh, take a quick break here. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com, seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulvidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. 
Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. So um, I want to talk about a couple of products because everything that we do here on the show revolves around the safety of our law enforcement officers. So I want to talk about a couple of products that um, that uh, I advocate for. One is an app that is is uh, called Thin Blue Defend. And this is an app that was um, invented by a Georgia Bureau of Investigation um, senior investigator. And he reckoned he did a lot of a lot of, uh, um, you know, use of force deadly use of force investigations. And he realized that these officers can defend themselves prior to the incident by, by using this app and then uh, utilizing it to record the events of what took place in a way that has never been, never been done before. So um, if you're an active duty law enforcement, I urge you, to go to um, thinbluedefend.com. And uh, he's made it very, very affordable. He is he and his company are, are uh, you know, huge supporters of the law enforcement community. And he has developed this product to, um, to assist you. And so when guys like Vaughn have to get involved, there is, there is material there that can help. So go to thinbluedefend.com. Check them out. The um, another product I want to talk about, you know, as as Von, we've seen, we've seen the the Antifa types. We've seen people doxing police officers all over the country, and I had no idea how easy it is to find information about myself on the internet. It's very disturbing. Well, there's a, an officer in California that created OfficerPrivacy.com. And OfficerPrivacy.com is staffed by uh, all uh, law enforcement. And what they do is they go onto the Internet and actually remove the information that can track you mm. and track your family. So um, this is, this is a, I, this, the way I look at it, this is a huge officer safety issue. You know, officers need to protect themselves. They need to protect their families. So if you are law enforcement or you were law enforcement, you still need the same protections. Go to officerprivacy.com and uh, check them out. Once again, it's, just, it's very, very affordable. Um, and if you're really handy on a computer, they'll teach you how to do it at no cost at all. But uh, I don't know that it's worth all that. <laughs> I think I'm going to pay somebody for it. And uh, they did a great job for me. So officerprivacy.com. Um, all right, let's get back into uh, – I want to read an article for you. And, uh, and, and I want to get your, your, your impression about it. Okay, here's – and I, I watched this take place, and I was – I had to just shake my head. Uh, President Biden was doing a Martin Luther King speech and calls – this is, the, this is um, the headline. Biden calls for retraining cops. Quote, why should you always shoot with deadly force? 
I mean, on the face of it, it sounds ludicrous. Um, the 80-year-old president's, I like the way they put that, the 80-year-old president's comments came during the National Action Network's Martin Luther King Day breakfast in Washington, D.C. And he says, we have to retrain cops. Why should you always shoot with deadly force? The fact is, if you need to use your weapon, you don't have to do that. I, I don't even know what he means by that. Um, he says, uh, I signed a historic... A executive order that included key elements of that bill at the federal level, bans chokeholds, restricts no-knock warrants, creates a national database for officer misconduct, and uh, and also said that the uh, instead of standing there and teaching a cop when there's an unarmed person coming at them with a knife, okay, unarmed person coming at them with a knife or something, shoot them in the leg instead of in the heart. I I, I don't even know. I don't even know how to address something as absolutely ridiculous as these comments. But how do you how do you how do you view that in terms of what you have seen in the in the 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 wholesale prosecutions of cops? Yeah. So the I was asked when that first came out. I think a year and a half or two years ago, he made similar comments. Yes, he did. And this this came up uh, because a police chief had simply told his agency, "It's it, it is does not violate our policy if you shoot someone in the leg." And I interviewed uh, the chief, and and I I gave him a fair shake because he said he was actually spot on. He was one hundred percent right. It if if you can safely shoot somebody in the leg, one they may still die. Um, it's, sure. it's a harder shot, but but it is still deadly force by any definition. Exactly. Right? The the point that chief was making was it's not illegal. It does not violate policy. If you will find yourself in circumstances, which he admits would be extraordinarily rare, where you could safely and legally shoot someone in the leg and decrease the chances of, of a terminal uh, injury. Now, I don't even he would admit. So I'm trying to give him, I'm trying to say this, this got taken out of context because when the chief put this out, he wasn't saying uh, you need to shoot him in the leg instead right. of center mass. Right. He was just saying it doesn't violate our policy if you choose to do that. Okay, setting that aside for a moment, um, they asked me, what was the biggest danger of this policy? I said, the danger is you're going to have unrealistic expectations by community members and activists and prosecutors yes. that now when an officer doesn't aim for somebody's leg or shoot somebody in the leg, um, they have somehow engaged in excessive force or unreasonable force, which is completely ridiculous. It was not the chief's point. But when we see stuff like this, yes, what's my what's my take? This is not complicated. Um, if President Biden was asked to teach a an officer safety course tomorrow, he would not be qualified to do that. If he was asked to teach what are the laws related to police use of force and deadly force, he would not be able to do that. He has never taught police or worked the street. He does not understand the reality of threat assessments and responses. And so this is no different to me than, you know, some of the experts we have in some of our cases who, you know, maybe they worked the street for two years, um, but they admittedly have never taught cops use of force. And, and so why would I look twice at that when, <laughs> you know, look, we do this with activists, we do this community groups too. And I, you know, I'm, I've made this point, I'm just make it one more time, which is you want to stand there and be critical of the police in their threat assessments and responses. 
this evening, I need you to come down to the police academy. I need you to teach a class on the law of, of, <laughs> of use of force and threat assessments and and effective responses. Um, and we'll have you down at the mat room to do that. And of course, they are not qualified. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And yet we listen to stuff like this. We give it a, I wouldn't give this a second, a second look. Except for the fact that you have impressionable people yeah. who are listening to this and going, well, hell, if the president says this, maybe this is the way it should be. And of course, yeah. you'll, you, you, you're of a certain age and, and you remember um, under the Obama administration, they tried to put forth this this uh, agenda called 21st century policing, right. which had some of the most ludicrous suggestions from from quote professionals and leaders in the in the police community. And still, you looked at it and you go, "What are they What are they talking about?" Yeah. But but our officers are the ones who now have to make that life and death decision in an instant. And now we are seeing that officers are getting hurt because they are not utilizing their, their, their training properly. They know that they should use force at an appropriate level. But because of the societal issues, they're afraid to do it. And we have seen, I know that you have seen, um, you know, deadly force uh, incidents that ended in the death of a cop that didn't have to mm -hmm. because of the decision making. Right. Yeah, no, and again, it manages expectations. So hey, when people say, or to me, this is about managing expectations. When people say you don't want to preach to the choir, um, I'm going to push back and say we absolutely need to be preaching to the choir. It is our own police senior leaders who need to get the message that you, you don't have to adopt this. If you personally know that this is unreasonable, this does not reflect the reality of threat assessments or responses on the street or effective responses on the street, um, then you were the one who's standing between these policies, these statements, and your officers, right? Right. So we spend so much time trying to convince the left, trying to trying to argue against progressive prosecutors, trying to, you know, the idea is our own industry has now invested millions of dollars into solutions that have not been validated to problems that may not exist because of comments like this. Right. Right. And so we, again, we got to remember it's got to be, it's got to be a policy that allows an officer to predict the lawfulness of their own behavior, right? So nobody would know what to do with that, first of all. And it has to be, it cannot be beyond human performance capabilities. When we start talking about the accuracy of shooting somebody <laughs> in a dynamic scenario, right? We know how hard that is. Um, maybe last I heard it's about a third of, of shots hit what officers are aiming at, you know, in a real life situation. Um, those numbers may change, but that makes sense, right? You're being shot at. This is not a stationary target. That's not re right. return of fire. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we want officers to do is shoot for available center mass. And we want to shoot until it is obvious that the th threat has ceased. Correct. Right? Right. So when we're shooting somebody in the leg or trying to shoot somebody in the leg, look, the law allows officers to use a quality of force that will immediately and decisively stop the threat. Right. So they can use force to immediately and decisively stop the threat, not try something and hope for the best, not try lower level of force. Yeah, and hope exactly. For the best. This, these types of policies that don't reflect the reality of of deadly force encounters are essentially, hey, assume the risk officer. Try this. You might decrease the chance that the guy dies, but there's no guarantee of that. Um, super, I'm, I'm going to tell this because this is a funny story uh, in law school. 
one of the other students says, you know, why are cops trained to kill, right? Why are they trained to shoot to kill? And you know, I was a cop while I was in law school, and the professor just kind of looked over at me and said, Vaughn, <laughs> would you like to take that? And I was like, no. He's like, I, they could shoot him in the leg. This was, you know, 1999, I think, we were having this conversation. And I kind of looked, and I go, okay, well, first of all, I, I don't disagree with you. If you can accurately shoot somebody in the leg, blow out the femoral artery, uh, uh, shatter the fibula, shatter the hip, the, the hip girdle, you, they lose their shooting platform, there'll be a, a, a fast, rapid loss of blood. Um, so they've lost their mobility, they've lost their shooting platform, loss of blood. Um, they may die, you know, within 10 seconds. And he looks at me, he goes, that's not what I was talking about. I was like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about as a point. <laughs> the, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and, and the medical doctors, when this first came out, we had some, some MDs come out and go, whoever's calling for shooting people in the leg has no idea the extensive trauma that occurs exactly. when you shoot somebody in the leg or in the hips. Uh, you don't get to guarantee the absence of death, and you certainly don't even guarantee that you have re reduced the likelihood of death by doing that. What you've reduced is the likelihood of hitting them, is what you've reduced. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's um, it's very frustrating. Um, you know, as as the founder of the Wounded Blue, and and for for the audience out there, I want to explain what the Wounded Blue is. Um, this show is dedicated to the safety of our law enforcement community. So the Wounded Blue is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers. It's a na nationwide 501c3 charity that is made up of all officers who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, uh, physically injured, or, or we recognize emotional and mental injuries and psychological injuries. They can be just as deadly. You know, there's a there's a terrible statistic out there that I'm I'm going to tell you, and it is about the suicide rate of law enforcement officers. And the, the the there is no accurate accounting, as you know, no accurate accounting for the number of suicides. But it's estimated that anywhere between three and five times the number of officers who are killed in the line of duty will take their own lives. That is a startling, startling statistic. And some of the stuff that Vaughn and I are talking about right here affects the mental and emotional and psychological health. So the Wounded Blue exists as a peer support organization for those officers. And uh, we've helped more than 13,000 law enforcement officers in the last uh, three and a half years, which is an astounding number. So if you are law enforcement and you're struggling, uh, you're you're uh, going through some some traumas right now that you think you're alone. Well, you're not alone. In fact, our motto is never forgotten, never alone. I urge you to go to thewoundedblue.org, or contact me, Randy, at thewoundedblue.org, and uh, and we'll we'll step in. There are people that understand what you're going through, and for those of you who support law enforcement. You know, I, I when I created this organization, I had a lot of people say, Randy, I support our cops, but I don't know how to show it. Well, this is the way you show it. You go to thewoundedblue.org, you hit that donate button, and you give what you can. If you're a, if you are a, uh, an organization, a business organization, and you want to step up and sponsor some of our programs, contact me, Randy, at thewoundedblue.org. So, you know, <clears throat> When we're talking about the, the physical and mental health, mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen a more challenging time. You know, I, I've been in now in the law enforcement community for, uh, geez, almost 50 years. Mm. Holy God. 
I didn't want to, I'm sorry, I didn't want to tell you how old I was. But but I've never seen a more challenging time um, regarding the mental health of our officers. And just it recently, in the last couple of years, we've actually started to take the mental health of our cops seriously. Now, when you're dealing with, I mean, you're dealing with cops who are facing going to prison mm-hmm. uh, or, or you know, get, being fired. Um, how do you f- feel that with the present circumstances that they are facing, how do you see um, them dealing with these challenges? Well, obviously, each of them is going to be different. Um, we're working a case right now where we're watching the officer waste away. He's a, he's a shadow of himself. Um, we're, we're involved in a case where none of the attorneys on the case know what the law is. And there's an officer facing murder charges uh, while the attorneys sit in the courtroom and debate what the applicable law is or should be. Um, and it was likened that the officer has his head in the guillotine and he's relying on all of us to ensure that the, that the lever doesn't get pulled, right? The, uh, some of the officers are managing a fine, you know, look, critical incidents, but unfortunately what we're seeing a lot of the, the word betrayal. So, as you know, Nicole Florisi and I uh, just taught up for you up in Terre Haute and we're talking about this concept of betrayal, that these officers are sitting in a job where they've been told, we have your back, you're not alone, you can't do this by yourself. He who stands alone dies. You have to have your tribe, you have to have your, 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 uh, the backing of your community, the backing of your agency, right? And then as soon as they're involved in the critical incident, we take their gun, we isolate them, we, we put them into an interview room with, where suspects sit, we then interrogate them, uh, we ask them questions that no reasonable person would be expected to answer, and we, we start really laying layer on top of layer of, you, we no longer trust you. Like the identity of a cop is, I wanna be a good guy, right? Right. I, so I, I'm a good guy, I'm selfless service, duty first, I'm honest, above and beyond anyone else in society, we want the most honest, the most selfless, the most duty bound. Um, and so when you really embrace that identity and your agency has has told you to do that, has encouraged that, and then you're involved in a critical incident, you are now not trusted, you are isolated, um, you, you no longer enjoy the, uh, the, the benefit of the doubt or uh, the presumption of regularity, I like to say. Like the, the officer did what we trained him to do with the equipment we gave them right. at a minimum you give them the, the, a presumption of regularity until you find something that, that convinces you otherwise. So these officers... I like that term, the... the uh, presumption of regularity? Yeah, that's a... Yeah. That's a I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that from you. Yeah, you can. And, and, it's, it's, <laughs> and the courts are very familiar with that concept because, look, when... We, you know, at Force Science, we, we actually are on both sides of all these cases. We, we work with, with prosecutors, we work with plaintiffs' attorneys, we work with defense attorneys, we work in cases involving police use of force and civilian use of force with gang members and robbery suspects. And our, our analysis never changes, right? We're going to analyze threat assessments and responses. It doesn't matter if you're civilian or police, it doesn't matter if, you know, during the course of a crime, uh, you, you're charged with something that, ultimately you didn't do, we're going to be there to help explain the reality and hold you account. Again, honest accountability, even in the criminal, even on the criminal side. Um, but when we we're looking at this, these, these investigations and people, well, I'm sorry, let me back. When people look at us, they're thinking there's not a cop you're not willing to defend. 
And I was like, you have no idea how many cases we see where we honestly look at it and go, there is not a human factors analysis that's going to justify what that officer just did. Right. What, it, what is really important for those people who are familiar with force science is when we consult confidentially with a client who comes in and goes, hey, what do you think of this case? And we go, that's a long, slow, guilty plea. What that, what that guy did is criminal. They're not going to put us on the stand and they're going to keep that confidential. But we have helped them assess their own case. We've helped them have good communications with their client. We've helped them if their defense attorneys meet their ethical standard, which for those who don't know, if you're an attorney and you get a legal issue, you have to get smart on the issue, get help on the issue, which would be us, or get out and find someone else to do it. Otherwise, you can't ethically represent that person. So when, when these defense attorneys are getting these cases, they, will, uh, they don't know anything about force encounters. Right, right. right. So they'll bring us in and go, hey, what are we looking at here? What are the potential human factors that influence perception and and cognition? And what is the sense making that should be taking place here that affects the decision? And we can help them analyze all that. Now, why is that important? People look at force science. They say there's not a cop you're not willing to defend. Absolutely not true. But if you ask me, Von Kleem, um, do you give cops the benefit of the doubt? Yes, absolutely. We we screen them. We did backgrounds on them. We hired them. We trained them. We supervised them. Um, we put them out there with the equipment. At a minimum, they get to enjoy a presumption of regularity until there is evidence uh, that we that they would lose that presumption. It's a rebuttable presumption. Okay, right? so real quick, force science. You're using scientific methods to mm -hmm. analyze. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, part of that is body cams, is mm -hmm. the body-worn cameras. Mm -hmm. But that's not the sole... That, I mean, that's just a, a piece of it, right? Yeah, it's one one piece of the So when we look at the body, the body of evidence that we get to analyze, right? The video is certainly one of it. Witness statements is another one. Forensics is another one. So it, it is a, it's just like any investigation, right? You want to bring in the full body of information. And then you look at that information and you say, how much of this was the officer aware of? Or how much of this was the civilian aware of? Because that's what's going to inform their judgment. We ultimately would have much more information than the operator would have had in that moment. Sure, right? sure. And so we're constantly having to fight against that. Um, but yeah, the video, the video, we got to keep reminding people all the time, the video is just another digital witness. It is not the officer's perspective. The officer is not a witness. They uh, they actually experience the event, not witness the events. You heard me say that earlier. Um, and you know, I think this is this is a, a a a moment now where we can talk about the the physiological things that take place mm -hmm. during a critical incident mm -hmm. and how that affects the the ways that the officers perceive. Yeah. So you know, we you have you have tunnel vision. You get auditory uh, diminishment. You get your 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 temperature is rising. Your 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 blood pressure is right. There are all these all these things that affect how you can perceive something, mm -hmm. and yet you don't ever hear that yeah. when it comes down to the you know the the common knowledge. But yet this is something that you have to take in consideration yeah. when you're doing your investigation. Yeah. So interesting. The, you mentioned force science, and we bring research to bear. Force science has about thirty peer reviewed research projects that certainly inform the evaluation. Absolutely true and absolutely critical. But what is also true is we have thousands of, of third-party peer-reviewed expert research that we use to train our students, that we bring in to, to evaluate cases. Um, for science, 
is not an individual science. Force science is a compilation of, of multiple disciplines and the mm -hmm. research they've done on these issues. So to your point, does the human body, is the human body affected by, by, by stress, right? And how is it affected by stress? And then is it possible that the officer involved in a critical incident was experiencing those things? One of the things we have to keep reminding our clients is we experience psychological and physiological perception, cognition issues, even, call, even right now right? Because we're attending to one another. We're not going to notice things around us. That mm -hmm. is selective attention. Right. That is tunnel vision to some extent. We have people wanting to say, well, he also wasn't involved in a critical incident. He didn't have hyperarousal state. Therefore, these physiological responses couldn't have been occurring. And you'll know they occur in a classroom when you look down at your, your texting and, and your wife's picking a fight with you. And that's what you're most important right now. And then you don't hear anything else going on in the room. Yeah. You don't see yeah. people coming. So that's a, it's a, it's a small point I wanted to make. Um, but yes, every case, when we're looking at the psychological, physiological uh, influences on perception and cognition, that's just because there's a human involved. Now, what's funny about this is there are experts who will come in on the other side and say, well, cops don't experience these, these, you don't get the benefit of the thousands or hundreds of years of research into uh, perception and cognition. Uh, applied to police officers because of their specialized training. And do you remember the classes we went to where they removed our humanity from us in the police academy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, <laughs> obviously it doesn't exist. And and so they will say, because your specialized training, um, it doesn't apply. They've gone one step further, and they said, the opposing experts, it's the, the royal they, opposing experts have said in some of their, their expert reports and in media accounts, um, you can't talk about these human factors issues. You can't talk about this research because a juror, you can't tell a juror to, to any degree of medical certainty whether that individual officer was experiencing tunnel vision or auditory exclusion or they're just simply lying about it. To which I responded, yes, your position is they're lying about it. That officer would really like us to be able to explain the other 33 reasons why they may have been experiencing a perceptual uh, distortion or why they may not have seen something that we clearly can see on the video. That is, we won't tell you what the officer was or wasn't experiencing. The officer will tell us that, right? Um, maybe there's some tests some psychologists can do. We don't do that. But what we do is say, if you believe that the officer has to be lying because we can clearly see the evidence on the video, um, then you are absolutely ignoring the hundreds of years of research into perception, cognition, um, and that's where we talk about you want to hold the officer accountable. That is not honest accountability. That is unjust accountability when you strip the humanity out of an officer. You know, you're uh, you are fighting the good fight. Um, your your organization um, has kept a lot of innocent cops and people um, out of prison, and that's got to be very very satisfying as a career choice. You know, so as we are coming towards the end of our program. Um, how do people find for science and, and, and is it, is it, can they hire you through, uh, their attorneys? Is that the way it usually works? Yeah. So ideally, well, there's two questions there. How do you find for science for science.com? It's F O R C E science, one word force science.com. And you'll see all four of our divisions, right? So if you're looking at training issues, those will be a training tab. And, and I would recommend that if you're a street officer, you go to one of our foundations courses. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you are uh, if you're interested in, if you're more involved in investigations um, policy writing then you should be coming to our week-long certification course at a minimum um, we have that online we can customize that but uh, my preference is we see you there in person because a single fact can change the analysis of, of those discussions and we want you there to have those discussions with some of the top experts in their fields. We have the top MDs, we have the top psychologists, we have top attorneys, uh, we have Dr. Lewinsky who's, uh, who has been just absolute pioneer in, in ensuring attention is paid to human factors applied to policing. Um, so that's our CERT course. Um, for those who want to go even further, we have a 17-week advanced specialist course. That is for the people who really want to deep dive and read the text and read all the journal articles and, and learn how to evaluate a case um, looking at all the human factors, the potential human factors. Not all human factors apply in a case, but we're going to have you looking for them, issue spotting them, and knowing when to bring in those, those external experts. So that's our training piece. Um, we're also into, we have one of the top de-escalation programs in the country, bar none. We have a unique offer in our de-escalation and, and here's why what we teach is unique. Not everybody is able or willing to be de-escalated. That is a foundational premise Correct. that the medical community knows about, the psychological community. So if you wanna bring in social workers and nurses and doctors out to the street to help de-escalate, they are going to tell you the same thing we tell you and that is, Many, many people can be de-escalated and many, many people are not willing or able to be de-escalated. Um, our program helps officers identify through thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, a very real street level assessment of whether de-escalation is even an option. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna have to leave it there. We're, uh, sure. we're at the end. I wanna thank, uh, thank you for, for taking the time to come on to um, the uh, Wounded Blue Hour. Uh, fascinating stuff. Um, so I would uh, ask you, uh, those who are watching and listening to this, to go to uh, the Facebook page of The Wounded Blue, see what we do, see who we are, go to our website, thewoundedblue.org. And for any questions, comments, uh, I welcome you to contact me, Randy, at thewoundedblue.org. That's it for this week. And once again, Vaughn, thanks for showing up. Thank you, brother. Really